With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and as ever, I'm joined by Spike's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello, hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. This week on the podcast, the Christchurch terror attack the death of Mike Thalassites and Beto O'Rourke's campaign for the presidency. This is New Zealand's deadliest terror attack. 49 people have died in mass shootings at two mosques in Christchurch. These are people who I would describe as having extremist views that have absolutely no place in New Zealand. The 28-year-old from Australia live-streamed himself opening fire. She'd also posted a manifesto online expressing extreme white supremacist views. Last week, the world was shocked by the racist mass murder of 50 Muslims during their Friday prayers in Christchurch, New Zealand. This was the deadliest mass shooting in New Zealand's history. The killer was a self-avowed white supremacist. Within hours of the news breaking, the blame game began, with many pointing the finger at right-wing commentators, the mainstream press, or anyone who had previously criticised Islam or immigration. Tom, what was going on here? Well, I thought one of the things that was most striking about that horrendous, horrendous attack from the off was how it really did you know, catch the world unawares in some respects. I think it, there was something about it which felt so horrific you know in terms of the body count of course the fact that it was this it was incredibly salacious the fact this guy was live streaming it on the internet as Mm. he was carrying out this attack, killing 50 people and then also as more information came out as this manifesto um, that he had written a 75 page manifesto was kind of poured over the extent to which we were we were seeing something that looked at least to people who don't research this stuff every day is something quite new something the kind of first attack on this scale from this new kind of very identitarian form of white supremacism Mm. it's not to say that white supremacy has never not been a form of identity politics but it very much taking on a very modern form steeped in internet culture steeped in ideas of white vulnerability steeped in a kind of grievance culture almost and one that almost seems very parasitic off the sort of identitarian left which i think was one of the things that was so dispiriting and unpleasant about the sort of knee-jerk responses to it you saw a lot of attempts to link what he had done to the kind of rhetoric or the ideas of more mainstream conservative or right-wing people people who criticize islam kind of militant atheists even were kind of thrown in to Mm. the mix and yet one of the things about this very kind of trolly form of white supremacy you know this guy was um talking about his attack on 8chan which is very kind of scummy message board full of kind of far-right characters um was the fact that he was really playing off of and anticipating those kinds of responses of people pouring through his manifesto, finding, for instance, at one point he talks about Candace Owens, who's that mm. kind of right-wing YouTube personality, suggesting that she is basically his inspiration, but she actually went too far for him. You know, that's mm. obviously a troll, and yet many people fell hook, line, and sinker for it and decided to, again, blame this on the right wing or just blame this on kind of, you know, shit-posting internet culture, etc. So... I think the two things that immediately jumped out about it was on the one hand that it it did it did feel like the most um it did feel like the most deadly attack we've seen so far of this new 
ilk of kind of internet culture white supremacy but also that in the response to it many people are actually landing themselves in some of the traps that these people set for them. well it has been really disappointing to see the reaction to it, it, it with the kind of knee-jerk reactions on the other hand i think jacinda ahern did say one thing which i was sort of pleased about when she made her official speech about it in parliament she said that she refuses to speak the attacker's name she says i'm really rejected this idea of notoriety she said it's just uh, it's not don't want him to achieve the fame that he sought through killing these people and i liked it because it prompted me to think about really what is actually at the heart of this i know brendan o'neill touched on this and um, his piece for spikes in which the febrile identity politics culture that we're in at the moment um teamed with censorship of any kind of uh, opposing view. And I'm not trying to say that his view was simply opposing. It was mm. beyond opposing. It was vile. Uh, drives people who are unhinged, who are, you know, looking to kind of m- make a name for themselves by committing mass murder in this case. If we if we challenge that with freedom of speech um, and allowing debate and discussion, then that would be a way of dealing with this. But try arguing that today because if you argue that and if you say actually the response to this shouldn't be less tolerance it should be more Mm. um you're just as bad as the attacker it seems as if a lot of people just managed to immediately impose their um or bring up their preferred bugbears um in response to the situation and it was extraordinary looking at it you know sort of globally so all all of the lots of UK journalists blamed other UK journalists, mm. whereas people in the US blamed American publications and American figures like Chelsea Clinton, who was who was mobbed for uh, for apparently being Islamophobic. And even in France, where you know there's no evidence that this attacker speaks French, the French journalists blamed the French press for being too Islamophobic and creating the kind of atmosphere where um, these crimes had happened. And then the right wing press in turn blamed Facebook. You know, they call, they even called him the Facebook killer yeah. because mm. they have a bee in their bonnet about Facebook taking away their their business and, you know, used it very shamelessly as part of their, of their campaign against social media. The I think the Christchurch attack has been in so shamelessly weaponized in a way that I don't think we've ever seen before in, in response to terror. Certainly, you know, not, certainly, so, from, not, certainly not in the mainstream any, in any case. And, and so quickly as mm. well, you know, within hours almost, it was suddenly um, people coming out and making these statements, criticizing people who were currently on the television talking about other things. How dare you book this? you know former UKIP person or something like that on the mm. day like this the ghoulishness of the response was remarkable um and what was so disgusting about it was that it just at that particular point you know looking at it specifically from Britain on one level it just looked like the British commentariat was so almost self-obsessed that they could only see themselves in this issue mm. they could only see in this horrendous attack an opportunity to have a pop at the person who works in the newspaper across the road First of all, and also just in that rush to judgment, the rush to kind of fit it into their own respective narratives were actually just outright lying or just yeah. spreading, at least spreading untruths about this kind of thing. So famous, famously, Owen Jones reacted very strongly to the Daily Mirror um, splashing with pictures of the killer as a child, you know, what happened to this angelic young man, etc. Owen Jones saying very strongly, this would never happen if this wasn't a young white boy, etc. Took a couple of people on Twitter more than 30 seconds to find out that Jihadi John, Mohammed Mwazi, you mm. know, the um, 
uh, ISIS executioner who was brought up in West London was actually referred to as an angelic schoolboy by the tabloids. You know, this attempt to kind of push this stuff. You then have, you know, Mehdi Hassan, who is now um, in the US working for Al Jazeera, likening the manifesto to Douglas Murray's book, The yeah. Strange Death of Europe, those two having a long running feud. On the one hand, it felt like this was driven by people's own narratives, people's own pre-existing ideologies, wanting to use it to score political points. But it was almost more petty and personal than yeah. that. You take a st- step back and you do see on some level these people standing on top of bodies that are barely even cold and just making faces at people they disagree with the shamelessness of that as you say is pretty remarkable i think um melanie phillips uh, i don't agree with everything that melanie phillips writes but she has had the most horrible time mm. um, of people literally directly blaming her mm. because she wrote a book about islamophobia directly blaming her for the actions as if this guy you know holds no responsibility yeah. as if it was other things driving him rather than his own murderous intent it's like it's actually kind of completely delegitimizing the idea that people make decisions and that he should be held accountable for his decisions but also i think what really we have to be worried about in relation to this is in his sick and twisted manifesto he mentions the fact that there is too much tolerance and he really is yeah. down on the idea of tolerance and coming out of this, um, if you really want to give him the satisfaction of his deeds going beyond the 50 people that he killed, it would be to clamp down on tolerance, to say that we can't say that, to say that we, uh, you know, that if you voice an opinion that that is giving the green light to murder. Uh, and I really am worried about the idea that we're no longer allowed to talk about, criticize religion anymore, because his desire to kill Muslims in their place of worship, it's just sick and wrong and murderous. Um, but that does not mean that we cannot ever, forevermore talk about Islam, uh, talk about religion without, you know, in being in danger of being Islamophobic and therefore mm. giving the green light to terrorism. That is a line that shouldn't be crossed. It's extraordinary think when you think back to four four years ago when, you know, journalists at Charlie Hebdo were massacred over you know their front page that depicted the prophet yeah. muhammad and the response then from a lot of the you know cultural elite was to say people need to stop talking about islam people need to stop criticizing islam you know almost to say they brought this upon themselves and now when we have an islamophobic attack like in new zealand funnily enough the response is the same that there's too much criticism of islam that that is provoking white supremacist killing yeah. and, it, and it's extraordinary that in in both instances for two different groups of killers who have totally different motivations the same kind of solution the same censorship the same um the same intolerance is, is put forward as the answer yeah and it, what part of it is in some of the backlash to this stuff you kind of think that that force field around islam is getting is getting thicker you know there's mm. this you almost couldn't be just a militant atheist according to some people at this yeah. point that's too dangerous and i think without wanting to go down this this blame game road i think we do need to recognize that there are some responses which are if only if anything going to make the problem worse or at least make the problem harder to diagnose one of which is this reflex back towards a kind of you know a identity based grievance politics you know about how if we even engage with these issues you're just going to um again in- increase the pressure on certain communities etc this kind of doubling down on the idea that um, there are 
parts of our society which are set against each other and are mm. really hostile to one another, etc. When it's really not the case, outside of some murderous, loans, loathsome scumbags on the fringes, it's actually only going to fuel that dynamic, which seems to produce people like this, which is a belief that society is cut down cultural, religious, ethnic lines. The idea that you can't actually come together, and the idea that some of those foundational Enlightenment principles, idea of freedom and tolerance and democracy, all ideas that people like this shooter actually openly deride are in some respects part of the problem rather than part of the solution. I'd just like to take a really quick moment to say a massive thank you to everyone who's been donating to Spiked. I know many of you who listen to this podcast have donated to us in the past or make monthly donations, and it's thanks to your contributions and generosity that we can keep going and growing. Spike to some very exciting plans for the year ahead with our podcasts, and we need the help of listeners and readers like you to make them happen. So, if you haven't before, please do consider making a donation, or even better, setting up a monthly donation. It's really easy to do. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. Thank you. Now, back to the show. Last weekend, Mike Thelicites, star of Love Island and Celebs Go Dating, was found hanged in a park in Edmonton, North London. He was just 26 years old. The fact that he seemed to be someone with everything to live for, young, moderately famous, attractive, about to start a new business venture, has raised questions. In particular, a lot of commentary centred on the supposed mental health dangers of reality TV, but also on the dangers of masculinity more broadly on mental health and its apparent link with suicide. Ella, you were a big um, devotee of Love Island. What do you make of the reaction to this tragedy? It is a tragedy. And on the one hand, there's been lots of um, nice tributes to Mike and people uh, not remembering him as Muggy Mike, which was his nickname on the show, Mm. um, but challenging that and talking about who the real person was. But uh, on the other hand, there's sort of been there's been two responses, as you say. One is that people have really come down heavy on Love Island, yeah. Yeah. and that's because there was um, another suicide, Sophie Graydon, who was on the show um, last year, committed suicide, and uh, there's been this suggestion that Love Island producers do not give enough duty of care to the contestants um many of the contestants that finished last year have now come out on social media and not only said tributes to mike but castigated love island producers saying that we didn't get any help afterwards that you're just thrown into the limelight and that nothing can prepare you for that that's one aspect and then the other aspect as tim black wrote about on spiked this week is that there's been this sort of analyzing of the links to male suicide the idea of toxic masculinity, Hmm. the fact that the reason why he did this supposedly is because he couldn't open up because he was the hard man. And anyone who watched Love Island knows that he definitely played that role as the kind of classic uh, lad, lad about town. And presumably, according to the kind of articles that have been written about this, this is why he committed suicide. Uh, And the two things are both really reductive uh, and probably quite upsetting for his family as well because his death has been sort of used as a means to make a broader point. On the one hand, that, uh, you know, totally doing away with the idea that perhaps he quite enjoyed being the personality that he was. Yeah. Um, that he, you know, not being a hard man doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to then commit suicide. Suicide is incredibly complicated and it's very wrong to try and reduce it down to one um, aspect, but also in relation to Love Island. I mean, these are adults who go on a show 
with every knowledge that and every hope that they are going to become famous so the idea that now that that would uh, mentally damage you is very suspect in fact love island producers have now come out and said that they will give therapy to every contestant before and after they leave the show which begs the question if you think it's so damaging why are you doing the show yeah um but yeah it's it's a kind of a a a weaponization of Mike's suicide for, and, and everyone's sort of sounding like they're very well-meaning, but actually there's kind of a bit of a darker thing coming out here. I thought it was interesting that um, Megan Barton Hansen wrote, um, was writing in the sun. She actually praised ITV and said they'd done a good job with, with, mm. um, with her afterwards. But, you know, she did understand that um, there was kind of a difference between, you know, sometimes how you're portrayed and how you feel about yourself. So she said that she felt she'd been a bit of a, a pantomime villain and maybe you know he didn't want to see himself as this kind of a muggy mike character but surely that's true of a lot of situations surely that's true as a thing in in life where the way you see yourself is not necessarily how others see you i don't i don't necessarily think that's unique to reality tv i mean tom what are your, mm. what are your thoughts well not just that but also you know reality tv has been around for a long time now and, yeah. it, and we all know it comes with a huge heightened sense of public scrutiny you know even before the age of social media being on the front page of the tabloids every mm. day for every you know indiscretion this is not necessarily new and i think in the wake of a tragedy like this um people always go looking for easy answers on some level or looking for what more could have been done but as ella was saying people commit suicide make that most horrendous and final of choices for very complicated reasons it's not something that you can just boil down um to these kind of easy to understand kind of new pressures and i think that the question of kind of is this a problem of masculinity is also one which just doesn't really stack up first of all because if the kind of stiff upper lip was a real problem here if it still pervaded society Mm. as much as people said it would to the point where people can't open up they can't talk about their problems if the stiff upper lip was still that prevalent we wouldn't have a show like love island frankly you know it, it doesn't quite add up we do live in quite an emotionally correct era in which a lot of people do feel for good reasons a lot more comfortable about talking about these issues similarly um unfortunately the whole issue of male suicide has become a kind of issue through which different forms of gender politics are kind of fought out you know on the one hand you have kind of people more on the feminist feminist end who use it to talk about toxic masculinity on the other end you have these kind of men's rights activists who kind of see it in as an example of men's vulnerability in, Mm. in society but that doesn't take account for the fact that as Tim pointed out in his article you know as of last year male suicide is at a 30 year low at the moment similarly just because suicide happens to be the thing which is most likely to kill men under 40 in this country it's only really because men under 40 are very unlikely to die of anything at all so you know the way in which this one statistic is just kind of held up not really provided any context is not particularly useful um and not only does it end up as ella was saying kind of weaponizing individual tragedies in a way that can be a little bit grim it can end up leading us towards some kind of dead-ended discussions that have already been raging um for a long time anyway which have really very little to do with victims very little to do with statistics and a lot more to do with the particular politics that certain people have landed upon and i think there is sometimes an element of, of victim blaming in this discussion particularly when it is around um people not being able to open up as the you know deciding factor in what leads someone to suicide or leads someone to have serious problems you know if you look at some of the statistics there was a major study in 2015 um looked across all kinds of countries and it showed that one in five um suicides were related to unemployment that's a political problem that's not going to be dealt with by people having better attitudes and mm. you know people opening up 
Well, by all accounts, it sounds like Mike was not having a good time. It's reported that he was deep in debt. His best friend died at Christmas mm. um, and he was living in his granny's house looking after her and she died um, quite recently. So it, it, there was lots of stuff, like mm. quite classic things that would make someone depressed or suicidal. Yeah. One of the things that would be negative that would come out of this is uh, the, and we've talked about this on Spiked before, is the kind of the ever broadening definition of mental health and mental illness mm. and this idea now that love island producers are going to give their contestants therapy before and afterwards they're not not when contestants ask for it but it's going to be a stipulation of going on the show as i understand it uh, and the, the lots of the contestants talk about the fact that they have anxiety issues and all of this mm. really only seeks to um, undermine the seriousness of suicide and depression when it's if everyone is anxious and everyone is a little bit depressed then no one is and it's very yeah. hard to spot the real cases so uh, a little bit of decorum in talking about Mike Thalassitis a little bit of respect but also just caution I think with talking about suicide that it is not something that you can boil down to something as you know specific and frankly ridiculous as toxic masculinity Hi there. I hope you're enjoying the Spike podcast so far. And if you are, why not help us spread the word by giving us a rating and a review with your podcast provider? It won't take long, but it will make a huge difference for us. So we'd be massively grateful if you could take a tiny bit of your time to give us a rating and a review. Right. Now back to the show. This week, Beto O'Rourke announced his bid for the US presidency in 2020. Within a day of his announcement, he raised $6.1 million, more than any of the other Democratic candidates in a crowded field. His announcement generated vast amounts of media excitement, including a glowing profile in Vanity Fair. But he's not even close to frontrunner status in the polls, currently trailing Bernie Sanders by around 15 points, and Joe Biden, who has yet to even announce, by 23 points. O'Rourke is best known for setting fundraising records in his Senate race against Ted Cruz, and then losing. So Tom, what are your thoughts on Beto? I mean, Beto mania, such as it is, is a pretty remarkable phenomenon insofar as there's so much excitement and so much kind of projected onto someone who is so empty and Mm. kind of shallow. I mean, obviously in that race against Ted Cruz generated a lot of excitement, I think it's fair to say, because he came within a few points of beating him in that Senate race. And the idea of a Democrat doing that well is obviously quite surprising, people feeling like he was a good campaigner. But when it comes down to it, he doesn't really stand for very much at all if you think mm. about some of the main kind of uh, policy issues which have really define the democratic presidential race so far you know single payer healthcare for instance the green new deal he just kind of practices constructive ambiguity on mm. these issues he kind of says i think it's a great idea but we'll see what it is in practice <laughs> and again these kind of campaign stops where he just has this very kind of high minded very american kind of rhetoric about sort of manifest destiny we're going to do such so many great things together we're going to bring people together but bring them together to do what beto it's never okay. really very clear there's always been a kind of you know liberal swooning around him just because he kind of fits a certain kind of hip gen xer sort of role i guess you know used to be in a punk band um like skateboarding at various kind of stops on the campaign trail there'll always be a point in which he stands on a table or a bar for no apparent reason just to show how kind of (laughs) 
different he is, I guess. But in many ways, he feels like a far more degraded form of some of the kind of centrists we've seen in American centre-left politics anyway. You know, Obama is an archetype of this to some extent, but he's even more shallow than that, I think it's fair to say. And the fact that there is this kind of huge level of excitement about him at a time in which the Democratic Party seems to be going in in a very different direction. And also, you really do need a more meaningful challenge to someone like Trump. Um, It's bemusing, to say the least. Ella? Yeah, Jacobin put it him as personally charismatic and decidedly centrist, which I think really sums that up. Mm. And certainly, I think, sums up the support for him among the kind of liberal Democrat donors who don't want someone who's going to rock the boat, Mm. perhaps as much as Bernie Sanders. Yeah. But is going to satisfy the um, need for a youthful injection into Democrat politics, you know, the idea of moving away from the establishment. But but that hasn't, it's important to note, protected him from the kind of his own identity Mm. politics onslaughts. There's been articles written about him talking about the unbearable male privilege of Beto (laughs) O'Rourke. The Guardian writing that he's a masterclass in male entitlement. I mean, it's all the kind (laughs) of classic stuff that you could imagine. It doesn't help himself, though. That video where his wife is just looking at him blankly as he announces. (laughs) So he's not helping himself. He sort of reminds me of Justin Trudeau in that kind of very pop star-ish sort of personality. The getting down with the kids aspect of it. The kind of, um, like Tom says, the extremely kind of vague uh, way in which he not only puts his politics forward, but himself forward. So he has this narrative of saying, I'm neither right nor left. Mm. We need to work together. We need to cross the aisle. We need to have the debate. I mean, he's doing um, pro-free speech as a real disservice because he keeps talking (laughs) about how we need to have the debate. But the whole point is he never actually wants to get to that point where he'll be asked to say what his side of the debate is. I think the important thing to note there is that it's, it's no good having a kind of, as some people have written elsewhere, it's no good having a kind of centrist policy in relation to trying to defeat Trump because the, the Trump voters who you need to win over will have no interest in that whatsoever. Yeah. Um, that desire for change is there in America and it's just utterly depressing that the Democrats cannot get a handle on what it really is that American voters want, which is real change in which you have to sit on one side of the fence yeah. in order to enact that. Well, I think it's fair to say that Beto is more of a brand than a politician. The excitement that he generates among, you know, among certain liberals, particularly elite liberals, um, is fascinating because it really gives lie to that idea that the horrible populists out there, they vote with their emotions, whereas we vote with our heads, you know, rationally considered policy options. But he has no policies. He He gives a warm glow of feeling. Just on that point you were saying about him being a brand, I think that's really interesting, actually, because, you know, we've talked for a very long time about the way in which centrist politics, if you want to call that the kind of technocratic third way, was very keen on branding, was very keen on positioning, was very keen on focus groups, who works well in this situation. Mm. You know, Bill Clinton and his very kind of practiced, kind of homespun nature, you know, Obama being this kind of very um, attractive, kind of almost professorial kind of character, um, but at the same time, Beto is almost like the kind of nadir of all of that because at least they had some kind of sell, those other guys. Yeah. You know, they had some kind of policy. The third way itself is at least, especially at the time in which it emerged, was a kind of policy prescription of sorts, yeah. you know, traded a bit on people's frustration with politics, was a bit anti-political. That beyond left and right thing has always been an, an attempt to try and capitalise on people's exhaustion with the way things used to be done. But he is literally just the brand, you know, mm. rather than using the brand to sell whatever agenda these people might have had he's all brand and nothing else and that is something quite striking all, all sizzle no steak <laughs> well, he's, 
in the Vanity Fair big profile of him, which was accompanied by a like really nice picture by Annie Leibovitz. Oh yeah. Um, he said, "I don't get turned on by being against." I really get excited to be four, which is a, <laughs> a terrible sentence, if nothing else. <laughs> also kind of just shows you where this guy is at. But it is also, I mean, again, this just speaks to the dearth of um, political debate. As you as you were kind of saying earlier, it, it is shocking that the mainstream criticism of him is that he's not fitting into the right identity characteristics. And even he, you know, goes along with this. So he yeah. said in that same interview... Yes, I'm a white male and I know there's not enough representation and I completely understand why someone would vote for someone else on the grounds of their sex or, or, or race. Whereas someone like Bernie Sanders quite rightly says, you know, the Democrats need to go beyond identity politics and actually stand for something. Mm. And it is, we've talked about it loads of times on here as well as elsewhere, but the fact that even the most kind of, it's, in a way it's the most centrist people, most centre-left people in politics for whom identity politics is the catechism, is something that you can't, you know, you can dodge every poly the question you want but you Mm. cannot dodge the question of your white male privilege you've been listening to the spike podcast if you've enjoyed the show don't forget to give us a rating a review or even make a donation we'll be back next week but for more spike content every day visit spiked-online.com